0: We've been reading chapters from Leviticus where God describes to the Israelites what his holy people looks like. We will continue on today by reading Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 29. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter that would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister, She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister, Because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives and that is wickedness do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your god i am the lord Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Our next reading comes from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, within which he prays that Christians will be holy when Jesus returns and encourages them with what this looks like. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter... No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gave you his spirit.
1: How are we going? We're good. What a Bible reading. Thanks, Susan, for reading it. It's not your average one. It's not the one we turn to for our quiet times. Um, but it's there in the Bible. And, uh, gee, it tells you, doesn't it, that the Bible is not naive. Uh, God is in, completely in touch with the reality. Uh, he knows our sinful condition. Uh, you read Leviticus 18 and it, it's blunt, isn't it? It's clear, it's... Unambiguous, but most of all, we believe God's word is good, and this is part of God's good word to us. It's one of the one of the reasons why we preach through books at the lakes, uh, so we don't miss good but difficult passages like this. And let me assure you, if it was up to the preachers choosing the passages, I would not be choosing this passage to preach on. Um, But it's there, and it's for our good. Um, So let's ask God. help us. Our great Heavenly Father, uh, help us now uh, to listen to what you have to say. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully. You are a holy God and we thank you that out of your sheer grace and mercy, you have called us to share in your holiness, that we might be called your very own people and different from the world around us. Please help us now to understand this as, as it applies to sex. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just uh, turn that around so I can see it. Alrighty, so I think most of us would agree we live in a sex-crazed world. Uh, our world is obsessed with sex. Uh, and there are things today where you think uh, it's very much in our faces. Uh, Every day, every week, uh, it comes across our path. But then you read a passage like Leviticus 18, and you think, maybe not. Uh, If you think sexual immorality uh, is bad now, is in your face now, I reckon the Bible's saying to us, actually, it's been like that all the way along, all the way since... Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. In our part of the world, though, I'm sure that many of you would have noticed a dramatic move away from a Christian ethic to explain and to help us navigate sex and sexuality. That's been dramatic. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I feel like I'm quite often, it's quite common now, to find yourself completely on the outer of a conversation when it turns to issues of sexuality, of marriage. Uh, It seems that if you follow the Bible's sexual ethics, it is absolutely fair game to be even openly ridiculed. Earlier this month, I I came across uh, this online advertisement on the internet uh, for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I don't know whether you've... You've heard of this annual event. Uh, It's sponsored by the Opera House. Uh, It has that that feeling of kind of a a high-class, upper-class Chardonnay drinking affair, not to be judgmental. Um, Too late, yeah. Uh, It's also sponsored by, interestingly, the St James Ethics Centre, which is the group that uh, puts on ethics in our schools, in, in the primary schools particularly, in competition with SRE. Uh, it's, it's a series of public talks where they invite uh, guest speakers to, to speak on controversial topics. And it was really interesting that early this month they spoke on uh, sexual attitudes and how they have changed in our modern world. Uh, so I found it really interesting. And to put their point of view right out there from the, from the get-go, the, the title of the talks are called There Are No Social, uh, Sexual Ethics. There are no sexual ethics. And here's what the introduction said. While many sexual taboos have gone out the window, there are still some clear lines that should not be crossed, like sex with children or rape. And even at that point, I thought to myself, on what basis do you make that call? Uh, As we leave Christianity behind, why are some sexual sins ruled out and some sexual sins, or they used to be called sexual sins, are now ruled in. How do you make that decision, and who makes that decision? Uh, The intro goes on. Growing sexual freedom of women, the influence of gay culture and the internet has changed our sexual mores. As traditional constraints have dropped away, many have been left in a state of confusion. What is normal and what is not? Of course it's confusion. It has to be confusion, doesn't it? Because we have completely eroded the basis for making decisions on sex. And so I think they've hit it right on on the head. Everyone's question is, is what I'm doing normal? Is what he's doing normal? Is that perverted or am I perverted? Who makes that call? The blurb goes on with a menu that now includes hooking up Uh, polyamory, sexting, friends with benefits, online pornography and Fifty Shades of Everything. Where are the ethical boundaries? How should we navigate the minefield of contemporary sexuality? Join our ethical explorers in the realm of sexuality to get a fix on sexual ethics in a time of change. How do we make those decisions? Well, the modern Western sexual ethic... uh, I reckon, has got to the point where we we determine what is right and what is wrong in the area of sexuality and in the area of sexual practice. And see if you agree with me, but I reckon the rule that most commonly gets used today is, is this one. What goes on behind closed doors in the bedroom is okay as long as it's between two consenting adults and nobody gets hurt. You would have heard that before? I reckon that's what's going on in regard to making decisions on sexual ethics. Now, of course, there's several problems with that view, isn't there? The most obvious problem is that it leaves God out. Uh, When it comes to sexual practice, God has been gagged. We don't want to listen to the Creator, anymore. Uh, We don't want to listen to the one who made sex, the one who has something to say about sex, that he made for our good. Since the fall, we want to say to God, we will determine what is right and what is wrong in regard to sexual practice. We will use and abuse sex to our end. Thank you very much, God. Which means, of course, that who are you to tell me who I can sleep with? And what would the Bible know about it anyway? I'm sure that you've heard people say God's view is old-fashioned. I'm, he- I'm sure you've heard people say that God's view is outdated. It's just not applicable to modern people anymore. Uh, we, we're a sexually liberated modern society. And the people at the time of the Bible were they are sexually repressed. And, of course, when you open the Bible and you actually read the Bible and you read Leviticus 18, you realise they are not repressed. They are not living in a sexually repressed society. It's, it's hard to think of a sexual sin that isn't written in Leviticus 18. I don't want to think about it. But it's all on display, isn't it, there in Leviticus. And what it tells us is God's people, Israel, experience the same temptations, the same sexual sins, both from within their own community and from the nations around them, as we do. The other problem with that definition is that what do we mean by consulting, consenting adults? Uh, The age of consent is a contentious issue. Uh, The age of consent is under pressure to be lowered all the time. Um, some would argue and argue very strongly that it is okay for men in their 50s to have sex with young boys and girls. Uh, this week I read an article on different views of marriage um, around the world. And in Yemen, uh, girls get married as young as the age of eight. In the news this week, an eight-year-old Yemenite child bride, a mere girl, recently died on her wedding night from internal hemorrhaging. She was married to a man five times her age. As disgusting as the tradition of marrying off children to much older men is, it is a common practice in Yemen. More than a quarter of the female population are married before the age of 15. In 2010, a 12-year-old girl passed away struggling for three days in labour, attempting to give birth to a baby. Countless other children have been subjected to similar atrocities. The question that we're asking this morning is, what does God say? What does God say? On view in these chapters, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, is holy sex. God tells us what it, what it means to be... Sexually pure. And in a book where God keeps saying, Be holy because I am holy, he spells out what that means for the bedroom. And what that says to us right from the start is that God cares about our sex lives. He actually cares about what we do with our bodies. He's the maker of sex, He made it for our good. And he wants his people to be different, to be distinct. He wanted Israel to be distinct from the sexual distortion of the nations around them. So have a look uh, with me at, at chapter 18. Have it in front of you so you can follow on. Uh, it's an amazing chapter. And in, in chapter 18, God says, do not, 20 times throughout the chapter. Do not, do not, do not. Nineteen of these do-nots relate to sexual practices. Uh, One of these do-nots relates to child sacrifices. Of the nineteen, all but one is picked up in the New Testament. God is serious about sexual purity. In chapter 20, he states the death penalty for those who disobey. And notice uh, throughout, it's not... If it's not the death penalty, it's being cut off from the people of God, which is still death, not just not instant death. And so God is serious about sexual purity. And just so we understand how the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament reinforces sexual purity for God's people, let me read uh, two verses from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament that make you realise that that... Most of Leviticus 18 and 20 is not talking about categories that are a shadow of the reality to come in the New Testament, like we've seen, for example, in the food laws, being clean and unclean. Um, There are some categories like that in Leviticus 18 and 20 that we need to understand differently now that Jesus has come. But God's view uh, and what sexual purity looks like is the same in the New Testament as the Old 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Well, looking at the prohibitions of Leviticus 18... Um, you can divide them into six categories. Follow this with me. Here are the six things not to do. The first is no incest. Two, no sex with your wife during menstruation. Three, no adultery. Four, no sacrificing your children in pagan sacrifices. Five, no homosexuality. Practice, not desire. Six, no bestiality, no sex with animals. And to give you an idea of how much God hates these sins, listen to the language. Listen to the language that God uses across these two chapters. The word dishonor is used ten times. You can dishonor yourself, you can dishonor someone else, you can dishonor God. Um, The word defile or profane keeps coming up six times. You can... Uh, Defile, you can make unclean yourself. You can make unclean God's sanctuary, God's dwelling place. The nations were defiled. You can profane, that is you can make unholy the name of your holy God. And listen to the words God uses sprinkled through this chapter to describe these sexual sins. This is what he thinks of them in his sight. They are wickedness. They are detestable. They are a perversion. They are a disgrace. They are acts of impurity. Well, why are they such grievous sins to a holy God? Um, Come with me to the beginning of the chapter. The first four verses, I think, gives us that answer. There's the context for these laws. Um, Six times in chapter 18, God says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. That is, this is not just some random set of rules and laws. This is deeply, deeply personal from a deeply, deeply personal God. God is saying, don't forget, I am your God. Don't forget, I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt. Don't forget, I am your God. I chose you from all the people. Of the earth, to be a very special people unto myself. I am the one who rescued you out of slavery. Be holy because I am holy. And obeying these laws was part of their loving response to a holy God who had rescued them, who desired the very best for them, who had promised them the promised land. And that's why he keeps repeating, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. And of course, that means, he goes on, you must not do as they do in Egypt. Um, Don't follow the sexual practices of the Egyptians. Where you lived in slavery for hundreds of years, you know all about that way of life. And don't practice the sexual practices of the Canaanites, where you were heading It's because of their evil behaviour that I am driving them out. You are going there to drive them out, and that is the land that you will inherit. And those statements are significant because the sexual practices of the Egyptians and the Canaanites were detestable. I was reading this week that in the Egyptian royal family, it was common for brothers to marry sisters. Uh, in the Hittites and the Canaanites, up in the land that was going to be the promised land, they were known for many of the sexual sins that are listed here in Leviticus 18. Bestiality and homosexuality were practiced, they were tolerated amongst the nations. And even where sexual sin was intermingled with their religion, their gods had sex with animals. Uh, there's an interesting historical record that Ramsey II, he's probably the pharaoh that M- Moses contended with at the Exodus. He claimed to be the offspring of the god Tar, who took the form of a goat. What is God saying? It doesn't get any more mixed up than that. It doesn't get any more depraved than that. And God's people, surrounded by every kind of evil practice are called out by God to be different. Who has the right to say what what sexual act is right and what is wrong? God says, I do. I am the Lord. I am your God. Set yourself apart. Live sexually pure lives, even as the nations around you degrade themselves. It was was counter-cultural then, it is counter-cultural now. It will always be counter-cultural. It's the same message the New Testament instructs the followers of Jesus. You have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. Stand apart from the moral filth around you. God says, listen to me, as I speak into your culture, I speak timeless words, and I call upon you, every nation, to repent, to honour Christ with your body, to keep the marriage bed pure. And notice in Leviticus, it is all for your good, God says. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 says... For the person who obeys them will live by them. In other words, holy sex is the good life. That's not the way it's perceived by those outside the people of God, outside the kingdom of God. But God says sexual purity is part of the blessing of being my people. But you notice throughout uh, these chapters, God keeps saying that if you sin in these matters, you will be cut off from my people, you will not enter the promised land. You will not experience the joy of being my people in my land in relationship with me. And it's a similar message in the New Testament, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that those who persist in sexual sin, those who justify themselves and persist in an evil way of life, who say it's okay to be sexually immoral and uh, live for Jesus, will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, there's so much uh, negative instruction here, isn't there? There's so many do-nots, but what what is the very thing that is not mentioned but stands behind all of these prohibitions? It's God's good purpose for sex, isn't it? It's God's good design for sex within marriage. It's what the Old Testament Israelite needs to have in the forefront of their minds as they, as they hear this law on sexual practice. Genesis chapter 2, that sex is designed to be enjoyed within marriage. That it's about one man and one woman leaving their mother and father and coming together as one flesh for a lifetime. And how good would have Israel been and how good would our world be if everyone lived to that purpose that God has set out in Genesis chapter 2, his good purpose for sex? Do you notice as you read through the, the laws in Leviticus 18 that all of these sexual sins, what they all have in common is they're all aberrations of that one good model for sex within marriage in Genesis chapter 2. They all pay no respect for God's good order in creation. They all cross over the the boundaries that God has put in place for our enjoyment. They all push through that door that says, do not enter, I am the Lord your God. So as you read through, you realise that one man and one woman has been replaced with two men or two women or one man and one woman with an with an animal or a close relative we 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 see a picture of the mess that we've made of God's good order in creation so incest is the sexual sin that dominates the first half of the of the chapter no incest look at verse 6 no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Now, the Hebrew words here for close relative are literally flesh of my flesh. It's the same phrase um, that God uses of husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. That is, a member of your family is flesh of your flesh. You are not to have sex with them. Or the words for sexual relations are literally to uncover one's nakedness. And uh, some of the English translations that you might have there still have that that phraseology. It's picking up on that idea that that's where sex begins, with the uncovering of ourselves, with the undressing of ourselves. And it actually, I think, says something to us about even the way we dress, that we need to dress modestly, Uh, modestly even within, dare we say, our families, even particularly within blended families, that we cover ourselves, we don 't uncover our nakedness and God is is super specific here isn 't he? When, he when he says who it is uh, is part of your family he 's actually defining who it is that you can marry and who it is that you cannot marry so here is the list in Leviticus eighteen of who is off-limits. It's your mother, your stepmother, your sister, your stepsister, your granddaughter, your step-granddaughter, your aunt, your daughter-in-law, your sister-in-law, a woman and her daughter. And to have sexual relations with any of these is detestable, God says. And notice that the only person missing there is your daughter, which you think, why? Why? Why, why is that the case? It's, it's mentioned later in Leviticus, but perhaps it's because it is so detestable that you would think that, that not and not even the pagans went down that path of sleeping with their daughters. But as you look at that list, you think how, how glad we should be that God uh, thinks incest is detestable. How good is it that God has this good order for families. How good is it that God protects families in this way? How good is it that God protects women in families uh, who are mentioned throughout? Although I'm sure that male close relatives are also, they are implied. But the emphasis is on protecting women and children, isn't it? Children are protected here. Children in your family and and children in someone else's family, stepdaughters and step-granddaughters are protected. And God not only protects them from someone destroying the stability of their family, we know how much children suffer when adults make wrong choices uh, about their sexual practices, but it protects them from fathers and grandfathers and brothers and uncles who might molest them. You see what happens when these laws are obeyed. The family unit is protected. It is the safest place, as it should be, for a child to be, for a woman to be. It's why when sexual sin is committed within a family, it is particularly grievous. It is such a portrayal of trust. It is so shocking and so damaging beyond comprehension. And that is why God is so serious about it. But those who mess with children, he says here, the penalty is death. It's hard to think, isn't it, of of someone more vulnerable than a child. And and Leviticus tells us that God is on their side. Jesus said uh, the same thing. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's why we take child protection so seriously at church. We must take it seriously. Our children and the children that come into our church deserve to be protected. As leaders and as congregation members, we need to be completely above reproach. And the world needs to actually look in on us and see holiness, see blamelessness as God's people. Well, the list of sins go on. Uh, verse 19, no sex with your wife d- during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Um, this has been picked up earlier in Leviticus in chapter 15. And there you get the very uh, clear impression it's, it's about being unclean. Uh, it's in that category of what is clean and what is unclean. And her period was called unclean in Leviticus 15 for seven days. And anyone who touched her would be made unclean. Um, I think it's, it's one of those laws that's not actually picked up in the New Testament uh, because it's in that clean and unclean category, I think, uh, in a similar way that the food laws are seen as a shadow of the reality. But, of course, there is wisdom there, isn't there? The whole of the law is is wise. The whole of the law is about love towards one another. And the passage which I think speaks to this part of the law uh, most clearly is the one where the Apostle Peter talks about loving your wife in 1 Peter 3, 7, when he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Literally, be aware of her womanliness. Be aware that she is different to you. And take consideration of that. So those who are married, I don't think I need to say any more. Uh, there are other kind of practice here to be avoided. No adultery. Uh, look at verse 20. He says, Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Don't defile yourself. Don't make yourself unclean by sleeping with another man's wife. Respect and honor your marriage. Respect and honour other people's marriages. And God says the penalty for disobedience is the same for incest and it's the same for murder, it is death. Respect and honour other people's marriages, whether you are married or not. This is God's good order. Again, we have a good God who wants the best for his people. Or verse 21, No sacrificing your children to Moloch. I am the Lord. Now, in a long list of sexual sins, you, you might think to yourself, child sacrifices. It was getting bad enough, but that seems really bad and really out of place. But if you understand the ancient world, sexual sin and pagan worship in temples actually went together, they were often intermingled. And I think God is including it here to say, it is all evil. Have nothing to do with it, be distinct. And you look at that practice and you think, how low has the depravity of man stooped that we would kill our children and throw them on an altar to a God who does not exist? I've got to say that some of the reading for this this week's sermon was just disturbing. Archaeologists have found evidence that this is exactly what the nations were doing at the time of Leviticus. In Jordan, in the temple of Ammon, in the territory of the Ammonites the very land where Israel would would live as a promised land. They found the charred bones of children sacrificed on the altar of Moloch. Uh, Opinions divided. Some say the children were killed first, then thrown on the fire. Others say the practice was to throw them into the furnace alive. And you look back at that and you think, that is disgusting. That is evil. That is ungodly. That is defiant. Sin. But it also makes you think, in a thousand years' time from now, what will people look back on our culture and say, that is ungodly, that is defiant, that is wrong, that is evil? The list goes on. No homosexuality. Again, it is against God's good order. Uh, It is not the good life that God has promised for his people. And that's a particularly difficult one for us, isn't it, in this day and age, when homosexuality is uh, constantly preached to us as a good and wholesome, even wholesome lifestyle, uh, together with every other sexual practice. And even though books have been written and studies have been conducted to show that the gay lifestyle is not a happy one, people persist in their rejection of God. Let me encourage you, if you're in, in any doubt about how destructive that sexual sin is, um, have a look at the research, and I can, I can point it out to you. Lastly, no sex with animals. Again, it is, it is against God's good purpose for sex. It is a gross abuse of God's good created order, and those who practice it will be punished by God. Well, as we have that uh, list of sexual sins Uh, in our minds, what difference does Jesus make as we come to the New Testament? I think a passage that is really instructive for us on this topic uh, is on your outline there. It's it's Jesus' words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, if you want to minimise the law such that you think you can obey it, so you think you are righteous, you've misunderstood the law. And Jesus maximises the law, doesn't he? Jesus says, you don't understand your sinful heart. He gives the example of adultery. But if you lust in your heart... Uh, if you desire in your heart to have sex with a woman who is not your wife, that is adultery. You are not sexually pure. What Jesus is doing is, this is the great leveller. As we all look at the Old Testament law, we cannot justify ourselves. No one is sexually pure, is what Jesus is saying. No one can claim the high moral ground. Uh, the Bible's saying that everyone is guilty and that sin still carries the death penalty. Have a look at James chapter 1, verse 15. Then after desire, it's on your outline there. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. But here is one of those ones where Jesus makes all of the difference. Sin is still leads to death. God's judgment is still coming upon those who are sexually immoral. But here is the difference. The death is being delayed. It's it's that now that Jesus has arrived, the death penalty is not immediate. In God's kindness and in God's mercy, God is holding off his judgment. He's holding off that last day when he will bring all of us to account And here is the wonderful, wonderful news of the gospel. That death that we deserved was carried by him at the cross. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It talks about Jesus bearing our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. They are incredible words, aren't they? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus bore our sexual sins in his body on the cross. That is a wonderful, wonderful message of hope for all of us. Jesus bore the sexual sin of incest at the cross. He bore the sexual sin of adultery in his body on the cross. He bore homosexual sins. He bore heterosexual sins. He bore them all. And so the New Testament actually gives us a choice. Will you trust in Jesus that your death has been taken up by him at the cross? Or will you face God on your own for your your sexual sins? There's a beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 5 that talks about being washed, of being forgiven by God because of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says, Yes, you were sexually immoral. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were men who had sex with men. That is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified, you were made right in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That is the wonder of the Gospel, that forgiveness is possible because of Christ. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. Let us give thanks for that. Well, I'm going to pray as we finish. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, this morning as we've gone through uh, your word on sexuality from Leviticus. We thank you for the reminder of your great design in Genesis of sex within marriage, for your wonderful purposes and promises in creation. Please, this morning, forgive us and wash us by your blood for every thought, for every action that has displeased you. And please teach us to live lives that are holy because you are holy. To your glory we pray. Amen.